Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. It's Thursday, February 16th, 2023 from Peachfish Productions. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. I saw a headline, startling new footage of a key glacier. I don't want to hear or see anything about lesser glaciers. I want the main ones, the key glacier. And of course, I'm riveted by glacier footage. Who isn't? So I went and I watched. And let me describe it. Let me draw you in to what I was witnessing. It was gray. The camera seemed to move a little bit. There was a blob. That's about it. There was a camera. It was underwater. It took some pictures. And what it revealed was, I don't know if it was startling, but it is pretty bad, mostly confirming some bad things that we knew already. So scientists with the International Thwaites Glacier Collaboration, a historic scientific collaboration organized by the U.S. and the U.K., arrived at one of the safest spots to land on the West Antarctic behemoth in 2019 and 2020 and used hot water to drill through nearly 2,000 feet of ice to the ocean below. Hot water on a glacier? That doesn't seem very nice. Shouldn't you leave the glacier better and at least colder than when you started? But they needed to do this to get their special camera in there. And what their camera revealed was crevices, or depending on your half of the collaboration, crevasses within the glacier. And this showed how it was melting. Not everywhere, not all at once, but in enough places with water that wasn't so warm that it could have a devastating toll on the glacier. The glacier, the Washington Post reports, is out of balance, meaning it is getting thinner and losing more ice to the ocean than is being replaced by the flow from the inland parts of Antarctica. Now, the Post, to its credit, unlike some others who covered this, I'll read you the headline in Al Jazeera. Antarctica doomsday glacier. We should all be very concerned. Okay, I'm not unconcerned, but okay, doomsday glacier. The Post submitted these findings to a couple experts, and there was a range of opinion, and one of the uh, most esteemed names in glaciers, a stone-cold killer, Ted Scambos, a glaciologist at the University of Colorado, said that the results may, in fact, the dramatic footage may dampen somewhat. Yes, that's what we're talking about, a glacier melting. It's going to dampen a lot. No, dampen somewhat the fear of catastrophic failure of the glacier anytime soon. He said, while we might see only a moderate add-on to sea level rise in the next 50 years, the processes are real and the triggers for accelerating the collapse are bound to occur. We have some time to get this under control Otherwise, the century of our grandchildren's children will be very, very difficult. So what I needed to know was how old is Ted Scambos? I mean, if the guy's 45 and he's talking about his grandchildren, that could be, you know, 30 years. If the guy's 75, they could be walking around today. 
So I did a lot of digging. He graduated from Stony Brook in 1977. Ted Scambos is, I think, in his late 60s. So there could be grandchildren any day now. We've really got to get on Glacier Patrol. With the same set of facts, other places played it much differently. Scientific American, Antarctica's collapse could begin even sooner than anticipated. And the Technology Review talks about a radical invention that might save the Doomsday Glacier. I don't know if uh, good news about the Doomsday Glacier equals bad news, equals medium news. Just know it leaves me cold. On the show today, everyone's a winner, except all of us, if we pay particular attention to the Grammys, Oscars, and almost every award show. But first, what makes a good pasta? According to Dan Pashman, host of the Sporkful podcast, texture, shape, forkability, the guy loves pasta so much he created his own. It's been selling like, I'm not going to say hotcakes, I'm going to say like cascatelli because that's what it is. He talks about the creation of cascatelli and he's got a couple of new shapes. We'll get into the economics of selling pasta. Dan Pashman up next. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. Dan Pashman is here. He is the host of the Sporkful podcast. It's not for foodies. It's for eaters. I remember they used to have like six or seven different slogans. They've pared them down over the years. Like a great chef knows, you have to stick with uh, the emulsions that get to the exact heart of the matter. But Dan, and this is what I'm most fascinated by, is now an entrepreneur. He is an inventor. He has come up with a new pasta shape that took America by storm. And now there are two additional pasta shapes I must know about the uh, economics and the conceptualization of a new pasta shape. This is part of his series called Mission Impossible as part of the Sporkful. Dan, welcome back to The Gist. Hey, Mike. Thanks for having me. So if a longtime listeners and appreciators of the Sporkful and the Dan Pashman oeuvre will know that, what does it mean? It's not for foodies, it's for eaters. Your advice will often be, and it's advice, less about here is how to prepare a meal and more about how to take the delicious bite of food and correctly put it into your mouth. Literally, the mechanics of the mouth are considered quite often. Am I getting that about right? You think about the mouth more than, and the mechanism (laughs) of chewing more than most food experts. Well, I mean, I, I think that I'm not a trained chef. And so my approach, I, I'm just someone who loves to eat more than anything. And so my, the way that I look at food, like a, a chef begins with the ingredients and, or, or, or the, the conception of an idea of a dish and goes forward towards that. I'm like on the other end of the line. I'm at the end waiting to eat the food. And that's what I'm focused on is what's, how's it going to taste when it goes in my mouth and what's going to be the best way to, to eat it to make it most delicious and so that's, I think that the fact that I'm, I am like an eater and not a chef is, is that drives my whole approach to food. 
Well, when we speak of food and appreciating food, we speak of our palate. But normally, palate is an ethereal concept, somewhat just connoting the flavors we like. And some of those pleasure centers are triggered literally in the mouth. Some of them are in the brain. A lot of them are associations. You do a lot of stuff on this, you know, juxtaposing certain colors with certain foods make us like the food more. But there really is a palate. Like that is a literal part of the mouth. And the mechanics of the tongue are literally something I've never heard a chef talk about, except if he's cooking tongue. But you talk about it (laughs) when you're eating a cheeseburger, and this is great advice, flip it and put the cheese on your tongue first. I feel like that alone should That's right. win you a James Beard Award. <laughs> I mean, yeah, exactly. You know, put the cheese on the bottom of the burger. And what that does is it, it, it puts the cheese closer to your tongue, which accentuates cheesy goodness. It also creates a seal for burger juices so that they don't flow all down into the bottom bun and make the bun soggy. Um, it's a simple thing. But it fixes a lot of problems and to me makes the burger better, you know. And yeah, like I've always been the kind of person who likes to like sort of play with his food. Um, and so I do think about these things a lot. I'm also just like a huge texture eater. I think the texture is something that a lot of average eaters don't necessarily think about. Normie like, eaters? You, you might not realize. <laughs> Knuckle dragging yeah. eaters? Yeah. <laughs> right, right. You know, like chefs do think about it. You know, for the first like four years I was doing the Sporkful podcast, I refused to interview any chef because I was like, ah, chefs, ah, they're too fancy and pretentious. Then I finally sort of broke down and started interviewing a couple. And what I found is that actually, they, all, they do also like to nerd out on the finer points of the eating experience like I do, and they do put a lot of thought into these things. And texture is one of those things, though, that I think the average home cook doesn't think as much about. But like adding a crispy element, adding a crunchy element, and often like if you think about the foods you don't like, or like if you have kids, the foods your kids don't like or that you didn't like as a kid, often it's the texture. Like I, I couldn't eat, I couldn't bite into a raw tomato until I was like 35 years old. Because it was, and it was mostly the texture, that sort of mealy center. Now I love good tomatoes. But, um, but the point is like texture and mouthfeel and the mechanics of chewing are things that everybody cares about, even if you don't realize it. So uh, in addition to the cheeseburger hack, uh, great advice about sushi, turn it around, have it touch the tongue first. Um, I remember you talking about this before there was even a Sporkful podcast. Is there a mechanics of eating hack or strategy that you've come to lately? that you realized, you know, within the last couple of years? Well, I mean, the, the last couple of years, my, my, my brain has been very focused on pasta, uh, m- more than I was earlier in my career. Um, so, you know, as you alluded to, Mike, I, I, I set off on this quest to invent a new shape of pasta. I spent three years working on it. Um, we told the whole story in the Sporkful podcast series, Mission Impossible, and that required me to put a tremendous amount of thought into pasta shapes, why some are better than others, and the mechanics of eating them. I spent countless hours eating all different kinds of random pasta shapes um, just so that I could figure out what I liked and what I didn't like. And what are the criteria for a great pasta that you came up with? So so there's uh, forkability, which is how easy is it to get it on the fork and keep it there. There's sauceability, which is how readily to sauce it here. And there's tooth sink ability, which is how satisfying is it to sink your teeth into it. And I think most Pasta shapes may be good at one or two of these things. Very few nail all three. Um, and so, you know, th- that's really like, I-, I don't know that I have a, a hack necessarily for pasta eating, uh, other than that I've just put a-, a-, a tremendous amount of thought into why some of them are-, are better for eating than others. Like spaghetti. Like spaghetti is not a great pasta shape. 
simply getting a good bite of spaghetti on your fork is a maddening process. It, you, you, you twirl and twirl, and most of the time the bite is either too small or too big. Uh, and most of the time it has danglers, which are going to get all over your face and all over your clothes. Uh, if you're able to actually get a well-composed, well-proportioned bite of pasta on the tip of your fork, you need laser focus to get it from the plate to your mouth. Because if you tilt the fork a little bit in the wrong direction, the whole bite's going to fall off. This is a poorly engineered shape. Yeah, I would say most pastas that you can make a sound if you blow into them like a woodwind uh, are not great. I, I think ZD is not great. I think, uh, I think, well, maybe, I don't know if you could blow into rigatoni, but a lot of the hollow pastas leave me feeling a bit hollow. Well, I, I've been thinking very deeply about tube pastas just in the last few weeks. So I'm writing a section about them for the cookbook that I'm working on, which is all different pasta preparations. We can talk about that more next year. But um, here, here are my thoughts on tube pastas. So the idea that, uh, in theory, the idea is that the tube will hold sauce. And it's pretty good for that. Um, but I think the the issue with the tube that people don't think about is that it has a big impact on tooth sinkability. And the diameter of the tube will really change the texture and the mouthfeel and the tooth sinkability of the shape. So for instance, the narrowest tube that I know of is like a bucatini, which is like spaghetti but hollow down the center. It's, it's too narrow to really hold much sauce, but it has a fantastic texture because when you have a very narrow tube, it has a lot of like tensile strength. And when you bite into it, it sort of springs back. It has, it has a springiness to it that's very satisfying to bite into. When you have a big tube, like a rigatoni, it holds more sauce. When you bite into it, it will it, because it's a, a big tube, it will not spring back. It will kind of go flat, but that has its own charms because when the tube goes flat, it becomes basically two layers of pasta on top of each other. It's like a double thickness, which is not springy, but it is chewy, which is another kind of tooth sinkability. Yeah, I like rigatoni. I think rigatoni is a pretty well done pasta, especially because of the ridges. Right. I, 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 but the, the tube that I don't like, the tubes that I don't like are ziti and penne, the medium-sized tubes, the medium diameter. What about lasagna? Now, lasagna as, I don't, I guess we shouldn't primarily think of it as a type of pasta, right? It's more of a dish and a very dense dish at that. But for what, if you, if judged on the cr criteria of, does it do what it's attempting to do? Is lasagna a success? Yeah. I mean, look, I, I, I think that lasagna can be kind of unwieldy to work with. You cook it at least part way and it's, and it's, it, it tends to stick together and, and then it's hot and you're trying to pull it apart and layer it. It's a lot of work. Um, but it does do what you want it to do. Yes. Um, and, and it also can be fun. Like um, I'm working on a recipe for my cookbook. That's like lasagna pinwheels. So instead of layering it flat, you take a single piece of lasagna, you put a filling in and you roll it up. And then you take these like pinwheels, these rolls, and you put them in a skillet pan all around each other. And it is a little time consuming, but it's really fun and it looks awesome. And, um, and like, it's a fun activity to put them together. And so, you know, I, I think that lasagna has a unique charm to it. There's, it does things that no other shape can do. So before we get to Vesuvio, and I am just absolutely enraptured and ensorcelled by the new shapes, let's talk about Cascatelli. This is the, this is the um, Mac uh, of your newly launched design. I'm sure someday we'll have the iPhone and the iPad, but this is it. This is where the Sporkful put itself on not just the commentary and the talking about the food map, but the doing the food map. 
It's got your tooth sinkability. It holds the sauce because it's shaped like a cascading waterfall. But my question is, and the Mission Impossible series documents this from conception to execution. If you knew, so I'm going to take out the enormous success that you had, but if you knew how hard it would be from conception to actually seeing it in a box, right? And if I said this might fail spectacularly, would you still have done it? I have to say, so like I spent three years on this. It was much, much harder than anticipated. I couldn't get anyone to help me. I needed help to get the die made. The die is like the mold for the shape. There's only one guy in America who even does that now. And he's doing it like for Kraft and Campbell's soup. So he didn't have much time for me. Took me months to even get a meeting with him. Took me months to find a company to make the pasta for me. Took me months to, to get a design that was good and actually could be physically made. Um, drove me and my wife to the brink of insanity. But after all that, I mean, I will never forget. The shape was scheduled to come out in March. In February, I drove up to upstate New York to Sfolini. They're the artisanal pasta company that I ended up working with to make the shape. I drove up to their factory in upstate New York and got to watch the first run of my pasta actually made. And I stayed overnight because it has to dry overnight to be put in boxes. And they, I got to take like 10 boxes of it home. And holding the box in my hand was like already so exciting. Like I've never made a product. Like I've never made a food. And like I spent my whole career making, most, most of my career making audio content, which is great and rewarding in its own way. But like, it's not a thing you can hold in your hand. And then having that trunk full of pasta boxes and then driving home and like showing up at my, at, it happened to be like an extended family gathering that I walked in on with these armfuls of pasta boxes and how excited everybody was to see it. That alone was worth the work. It, you sound like a couple that's been trying to conceive for years and went through rounds of IVF treatment. And the first time you saw the healthy sonogram, that's what it sounds like. <laughs> and then you ate it. <laughs> so that's awesome. A tear came to my eye. Um, I want to I ask about the economics of this. How, how, give us an idea of how successful the pasta is. I know that all the, um, well, in publishing, it would be called a print run, but all the production runs sell out. But then again, from listening to the series, that just might be a uh, deficit of the production process and not exactly a reflection of a huge public demand. I mean, you know, it's, it's succeeded beyond my wildest dreams and now it's in i mean it just it just launched the the Sfolini version of cascatelli just launched in 1200 walmarts around the country um it's at whole coming to whole foods nationwide in the summer it's in a bunch of other stores you can still order it online from Sfolini's website and they'll ship it to you but um so like in, in relation to me and my like sort of weird silly weird podcaster with a dream like it's incredible and it's been huge for Sfolini also which is great um you know in in relation to like all the pasta sold in America, it's still a very small thing. Um, but it's, um, you know, it's, it's, it's still getting bigger. And so that's like amazing. Like I, I get messages from people like it's on me menus in some restaurants now, which is like crazy to me. Let's talk about the new shapes. Quattratini and Vesuvio. I'm super excited for Vesuvio. I'm curious about Quattratini. It looks a little industrial and I could see liking it, but I think Vesuvio has real flair and possibility. Question one, does the success of Cascatelli, did it make making these two new shapes much easier? 
Yeah, for sure. I mean, look, the 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 business model was different with these new shapes. Like, I, I don't know that Sfolini and I will ever try to get these into stores. So this was more done like as a fun thing for them to sell through their website, you know, and, and I, don't, I don't know how long, uh, you know, like if it sells well, we'll keep making it. But like, um, it, 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 because Cascatelli was such a success, it was pretty easy for me to go to Sfolini and be like, hey, people know us for great shapes, for, for cool shapes. Everyone keeps asking me for more shapes. That's like the number one question I get. Are you going to invent more pasta shapes? And I, I'm usually like, probably not because I, you know, the first one was so good and so successful and so incredible. And there was a lot of, it was not only so hard to do it, but I also, to be honest, had luck. Like some things just went my way in the, in the development process. I just feel like I'll never be able to replicate that. And if I try, it will only be setting myself and everyone else up for disappointment. So, but on the other hand, everyone wants me to make more pasta shapes and I do love making pasta shapes and I had become a pasta shape nerd. So like the idea of sort of finding very obscure shapes in the pasta cannon and dusting them off and making them just felt, felt like a fun idea. So because Cascatelli was successful, it made it easier to go to Sfolini and be like, hey, let's give this a shot. How does it work? Do you get an advance, an advance, like a book author would get an advance against earnings to make your pasta when you sign the deal? No, there's no advance. And in fact, I have to invest money along with Sfolini to get it off the ground. Um, but um, but then, you know, like I get like royalties when, they, you know, a, a, a small amount of money with it for every box sold. And that's, you know, a nice a nice side income. And it's, you know, been going great, you know, so but then it's also like, it's good. Like it gives me content for the podcast. And then I now I'm working on a pasta sauces cookbook. So like, you know, one thing leads to the other. Um, you know, it's funny. I was joke. Like, I don't know if you had this experience. You, you and I, you and I started our podcast around the same time, a long time ago. And, um, you know, early on in the sport, people would say to me like, Oh, you, you, you can't make any money hosting a podcast, but you know, if your podcast does well, then you'll get a book deal. And the people and the publishing people are like, well, you know, you're not gonna make much money off your book, but but it might get you a TV show. And the TV people are like, look, there's not much money in TV. But if you get on TV, then you can sell oven mitts. And the oven mitt people are like, don't look at us. Um, <laughs> <laughs> like oven mitts? What the hell is that right. guy talking about? <laughs> right. So um, you might you know, want to get into making pastas. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> right, right. You know, whatever product it's going to be. But so, so, um, you know, like, that's sort of the model for the modern, you know, creative person, I think. Uh, you know, who, who doesn't fall into the category of just like out and out celebrity who can put their name on anything and get a giant paycheck for it, which is not the category you or I is in. So, um, so, you know, it's, it's some weeks it feels like a grind, like sort of a constant hustle to be like juggling podcasts and book and pasta business and all these things. Um, but I'm also sort of like an adrenaline junkie and, um, and it's fun. Like, you know, like my job is to like, like, you know, a good portion of my job is to cook and eat and talk about pasta. That's a pretty good gig. Dan Pashman is the host of the Sporkful podcast. He is the progenitor, not only of the gigantically successful Cascatelli, but two new varieties, the Quattrotini, the Vesuvio, available for purchase on Svolini.com. They have a limit to how many you could purchase. That's how much these things are flying off the virtual shelf. But you could go there and try all varieties of Dan's pasta. Dan, thank you so much.
Thanks, Mike. And I'll just mention, because sometimes it can be tough for people when they hear it, but Sfolini is S-F-O-G-L-I-N-I. Go to Sfolini.com. You can get all the pasta you want. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. And now the spiel. The Grammys were 11 days ago and the Academy Awards are 25 days from now. The coverage in all of Variety, the LA Times, the trade press, is a celebration of two of the biggest pieces of the entertainment industry. But pre-Grammys, here was the New York Times front page story. As the ceremony approaches with stars like Adele, Harry Styles, Lizzo, Kendrick Lamar, and Bad Bunny also in contention for the premier prizes, the key question for fans and industry insiders isn't how big she will win, but rather, what if she loses again? Do you know who the she is? You know who this historic loser is? It's Beyonce, who is actually the biggest winner in Grammy history. She set that record 11 days ago. She entered the night as the most nominated artist, tied with her husband Jay-Z, left having collected more Grammy statues than anyone ever. And the media was there to chronicle her failure. Not just the New Yorker, this sentiment was everywhere. The LA Times, New York Times, New Yorker. Because what they were looking at was not all the awards, just the big four. Apparently, Album of the Year, Record of the Year, Song of the Year, and Best New Artist. These are the big four categories. They've held them forever. You can only win Best New Artist once. But Beyonce has only won any of those awards one time, once, for single ladies. There were a couple of decisions that really were odd. She lost to Beck for Album of the Year a couple years ago. Other times, she had great songs like Formation. But that lost to Adele's Hello, which is, you know, one of the greatest ballads and performances of the last half century. I watched the ceremony this year. Beyonce seemed happy. She is a good actress, however. But she cried tears of joy upon winning and blew kisses when other winners in the big four categories shouted her out. So I say our takeaway is that things should be joyous for the winners, annoying for the beehive, and funny that the beehive is so upset to the rest of us who should regard the beehive like the political press regards the Bernie bros. But no, we can't regard the experiences of the winning artist as anything less than shameful. This is an argument put forth by Salamisha Talet, who's the reigning Pulitzer Prize winner for criticism. In the New York Times, she wrote, headline, how the Oscars and Grammys thrive on the lie of meritocracy. Despite all markers of excellence, contenders like Danielle Deadweiler, Viola Davis, and Beyonce weren't recognized for the highest honors. Niche awards won't suffice. Suffice. Beyonce's accolades, she should know they're insufficient. Her status is most ever not enough. The winningest artist, she really should be seen as robbed of some of her deserved riches. Tillette writes, Black women artists, despite their ingenuity, influence, and in Beyonce's case, unparalleled innovation, continue to be denied their highest honors. Except Lizzo won Song of the Year this year, beating Beyonce. Her won Record of the Year in 2021, beating Beyonce. Maybe Beyonce's songs and records this year, or a couple years ago, weren't regarded as being as good as other songs and records that were written and recorded by black artists. Hmm? 
The other half of that headline and that argument was about the Oscars. The phrase, Oscars so white, trended in 2015, when all 20 acting nominations for the Academy Awards were granted to white actors. That is demographically improbable. The Academy knew it and diversified its membership and changed its voting structure. This year, of the 20 acting Oscars, 13 went to white people or 65% in line with the percentage of white people in the U.S. population. Four of these actors are Asian American, higher than their percentage in the U.S. population. Two in 20, that's 10% of the nominees, are black. The African American population is 13% of the overall U.S. population. Yeah, the Census Bureau goes Hollywood. It's somewhat ridiculous, and it doesn't address the question, well, how are the performances? But it's kind of worth pointing out in that as recently as eight years ago, things were a disaster. There were glaring discrepancies. And now there's statistical parity. It is true that women don't get jobs as directors of big budget, even medium budget movies that are Oscar contenders, though women have won the best directing Oscar for two years in a row. Won't be this year. No woman is nominated. The four acting Oscars, the winners were split between two white thespians and two thespians of color in 2021. And that same thing happened last year, though one of the black winners for acting slapped a black presenter, making the blow we remember, not the blow for equality. This year, the argument is channeled by Tillette, centered not around the three Asian American women nominated, not Angela Bassett nominated for Wakanda Forever, but around Viola Davis, who starred in The Woman King, and Danielle Deadweiler, who starred as Mamie Till in the movie Till. They weren't nominated, giving way to surprise nominee Andrea Riseborough, an English actress who's been quietly respected by her fellow actors, but not thought to even be in the conversation for an award. But then stars like Gwyneth Paltrow, Kate Winslet, Charlize Theron began advocating for the Academy to nominate an actor who was an extremely long shot. And it worked. She was nominated. The Accounting of this goes that there are some 1,300 voting members in the acting wing. If 218 vote for any one person, they could get the nomination. So that means for every high-profile A-lister doing advocacy, there has to be 10 other actors, at least 10 other actors, who we don't know, who just saw the performance and said, this deserves to be one of the nominees. And it was. Uplifting story, right? Nope. According to the Times and Tillette, what happened was, quote, A racially homogenous network of white Hollywood stars appeared to vote in a small but significant enough block to ensure that their candidate was nominated. Gina Price-Bythewood, director of The Woman King, for which Viola Davis was expected to be nominated, wrote in The Hollywood Reporter, quote, There may be diversity on your sets, but not in your lives. And black women in this industry, we don't have that power. There is no groundswell from privileged people with enormous social capital to get behind black women. There has never been. The star of Prince Bythewood's film, Viola Davis, has a lot of power within the industry. She's an Oscar winner. She's a four-time Oscar nominee. She's one of 18 people ever in the order of the EGOT, let's say. She won an Emmy, Grammy, Oscar, and Tony. She's A-list. She's a top of list that Andrea Riseborough has never been close to. Therefore, one argument could go, that's exactly the point, that that's the power of whiteness, that an unknown white woman bests an accomplished, established, amazing black actress. I cannot disprove that. I can't disprove that's the way to look at it. But given that this is a subjective award, 
The question is, did one actor better inhabit a 19th century African ruler than another actor inhabited a modern-day Lubbock, Texas alcoholic? Isn't it possible the answer is yes, or not even yes, better? Just something like, I thought so, whoever the I is. And of course, race or whiteness could be coloring that view. But how could any white person ever say that it's not? How can anyone ever say that any subjective award that is bestowed on a white person was quote unquote deserved? The claim for the nomination being undeserved is simply to equate it with surprising or achieved in an unusual manner. Danielle Deadweiler was appearing on the British journalist Simon Mayo's film podcast and was read a quote given by the director of the film, Till. We live in a world and work in industries that are so aggressively committed to upholding whiteness and perpetuating an unabashed misogyny towards blackness. Mm -hmm. You agree with that, I imagine? She did, citing reasons why she wasn't nominated. We're talking about people who perhaps did, chose not to see the film. We're talking about massage noir. Like, it comes in all kinds of ways. Whether it's direct or indirect, it impacts who we are. They did the critical assessment. I think the, the question is more uh, intent on people who are living in, in, in whiteness, white, white people's assessment of what the spaces that they are privileged by are doing. Yeah, maybe true. It also may be true that Andrea Riseborough gave a performance worthy of Oscar nomination. It would be fair for a potential Oscar viewer to ask, how could I sort this out? And it would be further fair for them to say, do I want to, given that the stakes are what I watch on a Sunday night? It's very legit, quite legitimate for critics and reporters to take a spectacle, something we're all watching, and pivot off it and, and ask, what are the costs of our entertainment? Qatar hosting the World Cup, Putin hosting the Olympics, elephants in the circus. Yesterday, I talked about head trauma in the NFL. Confronting the audience on questions of complicity is proper in those cases. When the Oscars weren't nominating any black, brown, or Asian actors, it was an embarrassing moment for them. This moment, to me, seems more of a tendentious argument undertaken by some critics. The overall thesis is mostly undercut by the prevalence of diverse nominees all over the slate and the idea that maybe this one nomination was deserved. Fretting about the winningest performer of all time not winning in certain categories or calling out one performance as a symbol of a structural trend when there's a lot of evidence otherwise, evidence that it maybe should be not just a surprise but a thrilling surprise that we enjoy. All of this is turning award shows into a huge bummer. Award shows that, as documented, are actually honoring unprecedented numbers of performers of color. A couple days ago, Andrea Riseborough was asked about all this by The Hollywood Reporter, and she answered. Actually, she did not answer when asked. She said, give me a few days. I will get back to you on email, which is smart. And here's what she wrote. The film industry is abhorrently unequal in terms of opportunity. I'm mindful not to speak for the experience of other people because they are better placed to speak and I want to listen. That is smart. Don't say anything. Don't even offer a counter argument or a defense or a statement of your own worth or your own deservedness. Like her supposed chances at the Oscars and like many viewers calculation when it comes to the question of should I watch the show, it is a no win situation. That is it for today's show, and we have got another show called Not Even Mad, and people have been asking, where'd that show go? Well, episode 10 is up, 
It answers, I think, almost all questions. Please check out Not Even Mad in its own channel. And the gist was produced by Corey Wara. He's the producer. Joel Patterson is the senior producer. Michelle Pesca is COO of Peachfish Productions. The gist is presented in collaboration with Lipson's AdvertiseCast. For advertising inquiries, go to AdvertiseCast.com slash the gist. Umpuru, jipuru, dupuru. And thanks for listening.